Greetings and salutations, weirdos. Welcome back to the intersection of science, history, and the unexplained. I am your tour guide for the apocalypse, Erin. Let's see if we can figure out what in the Sam Hill is going on out there. Before we get started, I want to say thanks again for your patience on this episode. It has been a weird couple of weeks. First, we all got the stomach flu. Then my aunt went to the hospital where they found a brain tumor and we cut our vacation short to help out with that. And we are still actually waiting on the results of her biopsy even a week later. So we don't know what type of brain tumor it is. Then my uncle, who has been very slowly healing from a vicious E. coli infection slash quintuple bypass for the past like nine-ish months, fell again and went to the hospital. It has been a lot. Anyway, please keep the whole gang in your prayers. That would be very much appreciated. This week, we are diving into the infamous Georgia Guidestones. These have been on my list of future topics for forever, since before I even started recording, because they're actually just about an hour from where I live in Georgia. However, someone very kindly decided to blow them up the other week, so that kind of forced my hand on putting this episode together. Shout out to those very rude people, but let's get into the nitty and the gritty. The year is 1979. A stranger walks into the Elberton Granite Finishing Company on a Friday afternoon looking to buy a monument. Now, that in and of itself isn't so spectacular. As the granite capital of the world, Elberton, Georgia sees plenty of travelers. This stranger is different because he isn't asking for a simple headstone. He's asking for a behemoth, the largest monument ever quarried in Elberton. He's asking for America's Stonehenge, the Georgia Guidestones, and this stranger is the enigmatic Robert Christian. The Georgia Guidestones were a monument to a so-called Age of Reason. Four massive upright slabs towered over the rural Elbert County landscape, topped by a smaller capstone, with a centerpiece equal in height to the main slabs. The total height of the structure was 19 foot 3, and as a whole it weighed 237,746 pounds, which is roughly three full-to-the-brim tractor trailers. An important clue to our story is that the stone dimensions given by Mr. Christian to the builder Joe Fenley Sr. were in metric units, with the capstone being 2 meters by 3 meters by 0.5 meters thick and the main slabs being 5 meters tall. In the centerpiece was a hole through which you could always see Polaris, the North Star. There was also a slot that allowed you to view the rising sun at specific points on the slot for the equinoxes and the solstices. Supposedly, this was so post-apocalyptic survivors could re-establish both the compass and the calendar. According to a diagram markup, there was originally supposed to be a pyramidal sunstone for the Atlanta Masons atop the Guidestones, but that was going to be too expensive, so it got VE'd out, as we say in the construction industry. VE just stands for value engineering, and it means that you have to cut scope or reduce quality to meet your budget. On each edge of the capstone was a dedicatory message, let these be guidestones to an age of reason, with each edge being written in a different ancient language. The four ancient languages chosen were Classical Greek, Sanskrit, Egyptian hieroglyphs, and Babylonian cuneiform. On each face of the main slabs was a list of ten commandments, the ten commandments of the apocalypse, if you will. 
These were translated into modern languages, with each face having the commandments in a different language. The modern languages chosen were English, Spanish, Russian, Mandarin Chinese, Hindi, Swahili, Arabic, and Hebrew, in an effort to cover most of the world, both in terms of population and geography. The Ten Commandments read, 1. Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. 2. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. 3. Unite humanity with a living new language. 4. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. 5. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. 6. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. 7. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. 8. Balance personal rights with social duties. 9. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. And 10. Be not a cancer on the earth, leave room for nature, leave room for nature. Generally speaking, everyone can get on board with at least one of these commandments. I, like most libertarians, enjoy number seven, avoid petty laws and useless officials. But beyond that, most of the commandments are quite globalist, and it's important to remember this was happening in the shadow of the Cold War. At this point, Mr. Christian could not have known that a group of college hockey players would end the Cold War right before the stones were erected in March 1980. I'm kidding, of course, that's just the movie Miracle. But Mr. Christian did say this was something that he had been planning for about 20 years. So this is a man who saw communism in action for two decades across the globe and still thought some of this crap was a good idea. Personally, I take great issue with number eight, balance personal rights with social duties. It reminds me very much of the opinions of founding father Benjamin Rush, where you are essentially owned by the government to work for the good of the collective before yourself. Go listen to the amazing Brian McClanahan to get more information about him. But the most controversial and concerning commandments are the first two, which are pretty clearly discussing depopulation and eugenics. Now, I'll say that Mr. Christian, both in his conversations with Alberton locals and in his writings, seems to avoid the let's pull a Chairman Mao and just start killing people approach to depopulation. In his talks with the gentle, conservative Christians of Alberton, he indicated that he felt 500 million was a good number to aim for if, say, a great flood type of tragedy happened and we were working up from nothing. In his writings, he was advocating for long-term depopulation through curbing birth rates. But it's hard to say if he truly felt that more drastic depopulation measures were necessary, but knew that others wouldn't stomach such a notion. But who was this Robert Christian fellow? Well, no one knows for sure. Robert Christian was a pseudonym that he openly used in the Elberton community as he felt that the message would be ignored if he and his fellow members of the, quote, small group of Americans who seek the age of reason were public about their identities. The one person who did know Mr. Christian's true identity was Wyatt C. Martin, the president of the Granite City Bank, who acted as the financial intermediary for the project. Wyatt Martin promised to never reveal Christian's identity, and he stuck true to his word. But he did let a documentary crew a little too close to his old files, and we will discuss that in a minute. 
Now, despite the secrecy, Robert Christian did reveal some clues about himself through his discussions, letters, and appearances around the Elberton community that we can piece together to create a profile, just like a criminal profile that will allow us to test any possible suspects against what we know of Christian's life. That being said, everything we know of Mr. Christian is from him, so it's possible it isn't all true. It's also possible multiple people within the group operated under the pseudonym, but let's work under the assumption that all of what we know is true and all of it can be attributed to one person, with any co-conspirators working in the background only. Christian was born in 1920 and remembered the Dust Bowl, which occurred in the High Plains region of the United States during the Great Depression. It was the dirty 30s, but not the kind that leads you to a Chippendale show drinking a white claw out of a phallus-shaped straw wishing you were young enough to not hate yourself in the morning. Christian served in World War II in the Army Air Corps, where he did his basic training in the state of Georgia. He also said his great-grandmother was from Georgia. This is why he chose Georgia as the location. He was not super familiar with the state, though, as he originally wanted to put the stones in Hancock County, but was surprised when he chartered a plane out of Athens to scout locations to find that Hancock County was so heavily wooded. Given the whole eugenics thing, he probably also would have been horrified to know that Hancock County is 75% black. At some point, he worked as a concrete worker, He had a wife and at least one son. He had an honorable career in which he made good money, but not FU money, as some aspects of the Guidestones did have to be VE'd. I would expect upper middle class. Christian provided the specifications, as I said before, in metric units, which suggests a European background or a scientific background. He provided a wooden scale model of what he wanted the stones to look like. He probably did not come from an ethnically diverse town as he provided none of the translations himself. Fenley and his team had to seek out the translations with the Mandarin Chinese translation being provided by an Elberton local and the rest of the translations being provided by academics and even the UN through the connections of a Pakistani man in Elberton who was friends with the Pakistani ambassador to the UN. Christian had traveled, though, and specifically mentioned India and Bangladesh as places he had visited. Christian had a Midwestern accent, his facial features were described as sharp, and a few years after the Guidestones were erected, he was described as bald on top with white hair around the sides. He was an amateur botanist and knew the scientific names for trees. He also used those scientific names in normal conversation, which is exactly the level of pretentiousness I would expect out of a eugenicist. In 1986, Christian published his manifesto, Common Sense Renewed, with a small publishing group in Iowa led by Robert Merriman. To my amateur eyes, the handwriting on the scanned copy of the book that is readily available on the internet matches the signatures and handwriting of Christian's letters shown in the documentary, so we can assume that the manifesto was genuine and not a copycat. Christian had that manifesto sent to numerous major thought leaders, presumably because to his chagrin, no one took the Guidestones all that seriously. 
Christian supposedly chose his pseudonym because he was a Christian. Speculation abounds that Robert Christian is a reference to Rosicrucianism, but both the commandments and the manifesto suggest a far more secular ideology, and there don't appear to me to be any occult or spiritual aspects to the Guidestones. For example, I'm surprised that there was no viewing portal for the star Sirius, but I suppose that could have been on the sunstone that was not included in the final design. There is speculation that Christian was a Freemason, as the sunstone had some connection to the Atlanta Masons, and many of the people on the project were Masons. Joe Fenley Sr., the builder, Horace and Frank Bradford, the stonecutters, and Wayne Mullinex, the contractor and land provider, were all 32nd degree Masons and Shriners. Additionally, Joe B. Davis, the project superintendent, and Charlie Clamp, the sandblaster, were lower degree masons. In fact, it seems like everyone but Wyatt Martin was a Freemason, but there's no evidence that Christian himself was a Freemason. Later in his life, he had open heart surgery in 1998. In 2003, he called Joe Fenley Sr., wanting to reveal his identity after all these years, but Fenley told him that he didn't want to know, and Fenley died never knowing. Christian died sometime after that, but several years before the documentarists filmed their interview with Wyatt Martin in 2010. The documentary I keep mentioning is called Dark Clouds Over Elberton. In general, I think it's worth watching, but it isn't a project I feel I can endorse. There is some controversy over their interview with Wyatt Martin. They knew he wouldn't reveal the name, but they did sort of bully him into opening an old IBM computer case where he had all the documents related to Robert Christian. Wyatt was supposed to have destroyed all his documents as Fenley did, but he had grand intentions of writing a book, so he held onto the paperwork in case he ever sat down to it so that he would have all those dates, etc. He never did, unfortunately, because that would have been an amazing resource. Anyway, there's been an accusation by Van Smith, the man who set up the interview, that Wyatt Martin had recently had a stroke just a few weeks before filming, and that the filmmakers were taking advantage of an old, feeble man. I can't really say. The footage in the film isn't too damning, but they certainly pushed harder than I probably would have, regardless of whether Wyatt had had a stroke or not, and that's just the footage they showed. Who knows what they cut. For better or for worse, though, that pushing provided the closest thing to a smoking gun that we will probably ever have in this mystery. In that old IBM case was an envelope postmarked from Fort Dodge, Iowa, and another envelope with a return address of 730 Raywood Drive, Fort Dodge, Iowa. This address led the filmmakers to the name Dr. Herbert Hinsey Kirsten. Dr. Kirsten is probably the best candidate we have so far for the identity of Robert Christian, but he certainly isn't the only one. Other theories include Ted Turner, the Illuminati, and if you're that one guy in the documentary, bless his heart, the Bilderberg Group. Of course, he meant the Bilderberg Group, but I won't tell him if you won't, because I much prefer the idea of a bunch of giant stuffed teddy bears taking over the world than whatever timeline we are currently on. The problem with these theories are that Ted Turner was born in 1938, so he definitely would not have been old enough to fight in World War II, and secret societies would probably have the money to get exactly what they wanted and not a VE to simpler version. 
so let's take a look at the life of Dr. Kirsten and see what comparisons can be made to our profile of Mr. Christian. Kirsten was born on May 7, 1920 in Fort Dodge, Iowa. According to his obituary, he served in the Army in World War II and was stationed in Charleston, Chicago, the Philippines, and Japan. In Tokyo, he supposedly was in charge of a 1,000-bed hospital. I'm not exactly sure that a 25-year-old that hadn't yet completed his residencies would have been put in charge of a hospital in lieu of, say, I don't know, experienced physicians, but, you know, whatever floats their boat. According to the records I found, he enlisted as a private in the reserves on June 20. 8th, 1943 at Camp Dodge Herald, Iowa. He then enlisted full bore in the army on October 6th, 1944, and was discharged on December 11th, 1946. I was not able to confirm easily that Kirsten did any training in Georgia, but we did have several camps in Georgia in World War II, so it wouldn't be surprising that he may have come through here. I was able to confirm that Kirsten's mother's mother's parents, William Greenbury Gore and Charity Sevilla Welburn, spent some time in Georgia when they were recently married. The 1860 census puts them in Cassville, Georgia, which is in Bartow County in Northwest Georgia. They were both born and married in South Carolina, and they moved on to Texas pretty quickly after Georgia. Northwest Georgia had some pretty bad fighting in the Civil War, so they may have been forced to move out of the area and still had fond memories of Georgia that they passed on to Kirsten through their daughter, his grandmother. Kirsten had a wife, two daughters, and two sons. He and his wife both died in 2005. As a surgeon, he made pretty good money and left $400,000 to the local Catholic diocese in his will. He was also an activist in his field, advocating against socialized medicine and also against the use of physician's assistants, which he called partially trained physicians, or as I call them, competition with less debt. Kirsten was Catholic, but openly supported the use of birth control, particularly as it pertained to population control, and birth control was not acceptable within the Catholic Church at the time. Because of his active Catholicism, Kirsten probably was not an active Freemason, as it used to be that Catholics could not join the Freemasons. I was not able to confirm one way or another. It's always possible that, like his opinions on birth control, he held an affiliation with the Masons that was, say, off the books and not in line with mainland Catholicism. Kirsten loved trees and had a tree farm, so he would definitely know the scientific names for at least some tree species. He was also passionate about environmental environmentalism in general, and in the early 1970s advocated for the creation of a 23,000 acre park that would be the Disneyland of Iowa, but also would rewild parts of the park, preserving the flora and fauna of 19th century Iowa. Per his obituary, he was very involved in environmental and world population issues. Also in his obituary listed among his hobbies was woodworking, and we know from the documentary that when he was planning a pergola bandstand for the Fort Dodge Square, he built a wooden scale model, similar to the one that Robert Christian used to demonstrate his idea for the Guidestones. Kirsten was a gentleman scholar of sorts and had 10 patents to his name. The most interesting of these is US 2,728,216, combination form and facing device for concrete, which he applied for on October 26, 1950. So we definitely have some familiarity with concrete working. 
Kirsten lived at 730 Raywood Drive from before the building of the Guidestones until his death. Obviously, don't try to go there. The house has changed hands a couple of times since then, and some completely unrelated family lives there now. Kirsten knew Robert Merriman, and in the documentary, they were described as friends, not just casual acquaintances. Kirsten was a member of the Fort Dodge Country Club, where he supposedly told fellow club members that he was determined to find a scientific measurement that would prove Northern European whites to be the superior race. In a letter to the Sun Sentinel newspaper in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, he praised famous paleoconservative Pat Buchanan, but in the same letter, he praised famous Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke, and Kirsten was also friends with William Shockley of Nobel Prize and racist eugenics fame. For what it's worth, Fort Dodge even today is 90% white, and that's probably even more strongly white among the country club crowd, so Kirsten probably never properly interacted with peoples of other races in his entire life, except for maybe in his travels. His loss. So, 1920? Check. World War II? Check. Great-grandmother that lived in Georgia? Check. Wife? Check. Son? Check. Died after 2003? Check. Honorable career, check. Scientific background, check. Wooden scale model, check. Background in concrete, check. Familiarity with scientific names of trees, check. Midwestern, check. Uppity country club type, check. Population control and eugenics, check. Address, check. Connection to manifesto publisher, check. And finally, Kirsten did have white hair with thinning amounts on the top but I can't say what his hair looked like for sure in 1982 when Hudson Cohn met him. I'm not sure it matters though, because everything else is check, check, check. I personally am fully convinced that Kirsten was in fact Robert Christian, and it makes sense to me that someone who was still pretty publicly racist in the 1980s might see the writing on the wall that he needed to publish his ideas anonymously and without the specter of racism if he was going to be taken seriously. Now that we know Robert Christian's identity, though, I want to discuss an odd point in the documentary. The filmmakers spoke to Shirley McNeely at Coggins Industries. She is, or was at the time of filming the president of the various companies owned by Frank Coggins. Frank Coggins was involved in the Guidestones project as a promoter of sorts. He was involved in keeping the Guidestones in Albert County versus Hancock County and in promoting them as a tourist attraction. Anyway, Shirley still had letters in her files from Robert Christian, but one letter shown in the documentary didn't make sense. One of these things is not like the other. First of all, it sounded like a different person other than Kirsten wrote it. Their writing style was completely different. Second of all, it's in all caps. And third of all, it's just weird. To whomever comes across this presenting, contained herein are keys that have been awaited to be placed here in proper sequencing and in proper order to announce the return and the activation of those events of prophecy that signal these events. Those who have guarded this great mystery and who have guarded the evolution of the human species itself are returning. It has begun. This monument, known as the Georgia Guidestones, shall find threads unto the revelation of its mystery in the name R.C. Christian, otherwise known unto that contingency that is responsible for the erection of this monument as Christian Rosenkreutz, 1378 to 1484. This presentation of keys upon the finding of it is to be delivered to the Elberton Star. I'll interrupt here to mention that the Elberton Star is just the local newspaper. 
The Alberton Star is to deliver it to the Atlanta Rosicrucian Society. The Rosicrucian contact number is 1. That number is derived from the synchronistic mystery of 404-294-4172 in Atlanta. It is only those with the understand of the rose and its return who will be capable of deciphering the codes and the keys that are contained herein. Unto this great mystery shall it in due time be unveiled, likened unto she whose great portal reads only, Know thyself. Unto the unveiling of her wisdom shall come indeed the bridegroom, bearing the knowledge of the perfect blending of the red, the white, to bring forth the gold and thus the purity of the rose. It shall bloom again. This monument has now been activated by that which was to come forth into its activation and technological understanding, and many shall come forth unto this portal to awaken and to be thusly activated. You are greatly loved mankind. Once we saw through the glass darkly, but soon we shall see face to face. Do not fear, we are with you through the coming change. This letter is obviously, perhaps the biggest mystery of the Guidestones. In the documentary, they use it to suggest what might be in the time capsule supposedly buried underneath the Guidestones explanatory tablet. Of course, the people involved in the Guidestones project said no time capsule had been buried and no dates were ever inscribed on the time capsule stone. But this letter directly links the Guidestones to the Rosicrucians, whereas the name R.C. Christian only hints at it. Unfortunately for the filmmaker, I think this letter is a fake. Allow me to explain. The letters from Christian all have a typed signature of Robert Christian, then handwritten initials RC. This letter has no signature at all, is written in all capitals, and the top is not formatted as Christian formatted his letters, with the recipient's name and address at the top. So this definitely seems out of character for Christian himself, and it seems odd to provide a letter with no signature. The only source we have for this document is the documentarians after the fact. None of the footage of Shirley McNeely with the paperwork shows this document in her hand, and you can't tell me that she would not have immediately pulled it out as the strangest part of the mystery if she had known it was there in the file. The Elberton Star were also not aware of the document. Again, surely someone would have rung them up upon receipt of the document to let them know they might have to get in touch with the Atlanta Rosicrucian Society and they should start trying to figure out who those people were. Speaking of the Rosicrucians, in the documentary, they say that the Rosicrucians are the most secret of the secret societies and that members don't reveal their names. Unfortunately, a quick search on the interwebs shows that there are numerous sects of Rosicrucians and that some have magazines and websites and all that from members that definitely do not remain anonymous. So I'm not exactly sure where these people got their information on that one. Surely the most secret of secret societies aren't even publicly known. Then they don't mention it in the documentary, but I saw in an article that the filmmakers supposedly researched the phone number 404 294-4172 and found that it belonged to the Atlanta Rosicrucian Society. That's something I was not able to verify for myself. I was able to get my hands on an Atlanta phone book from 1982, and not only was there no listing for any Rosicrucian organization, but that phone number wasn't in there either. It's possible that an organization might have had an unlisted number, but more likely these were small groups that would have met in homes and churches rather than having a dedicated location with a dedicated phone number. 
Also, the formatting of the phone number seems off. The phone number is listed with a dash between the area code and the exchange number. This is a more modern writing convention. We have to remember that in 1980, most towns across America, Atlanta included, used local seven-digit dialing, meaning the area code was implied and was only required if you were going to make a long-distance call. Because of this, when the area code was written, it was typically separated from the other seven digits by parentheses. It's only since we have become accustomed to 10-digit dialing all the time that we have begun treating the area code equally to the exchange number in format. Another issue is the formatting of Christian's name. The letter calls him R.C. Christian, which is the modern convention of referring to him based on the Guidestones explanatory tablet. But in his letters and in his manifesto, Christian refers to himself as Robert Christian. I would expect that he or anyone else he was directly dealing with would stick to that convention in correspondence. Finally, I don't actually think Herbert Christian was a Rosicrucian. His ideals seem far more aligned with a Sierra Club meets Margaret Sanger type than a Rosicrucian. Rosicrucian philosophy blends Christian mysticism, alchemy, hermeticism, and ancient Egyptian mythology in addition to influences from other traditions. The only mention of allegory or mystical metaphor in the entire Guidestone saga is in this letter, and we find no occult symbols on the stones themselves. Plus, as I mentioned previously, the astronomical aspects of the Guidestones only tracked the North Star and the Sun. There's no Sirius or Orion alignments as we see with the Great Pyramid. There's no symbolism, no artistry. It's compass and calendar, pure and simple. And while various witches, pagans, and psychics have described the stones as having a special energy, this is really the only discussion of the monument as a portal. It's my belief that this letter was written after the fact by someone unrelated to the construction who performed some sort of ritual at the site to activate it for their own intentions, or that this letter was outright faked by the documentary filmmakers in order to further the Rosicrucian angle and thus the grift. It wouldn't be that hard to Google chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz and pull similar language together. Evil occultism puts asses in seats, especially in the conservative Christian demographic targeted by the documentary. Rich racist doctor wants you all to stop breeding and stop cutting down trees is much less compelling from a spiritual perspective. And now the mighty have fallen. As I mentioned, just a few weeks ago, the Guidestones were bombed and then were subsequently torn down by investigators because the structure was too unstable to remain. Off the top of my head, I can think of three types of people who might want this pulled down. One would be conservative Christian types who think the Guidestones were from Satan. This goes along with the themes of the documentary and is consistent with most of the spray paint vandalism that the Guidestones have faced over the years. Two would-be leftists. The Guidestones haven't traditionally been targeted by leftists, but if we're going to tear down every monument or building name of a founding father that owned slaves, why not tear down the monument designed by a guy who was actively racist probably until the day he died, but at least at the time of the monument's construction in 1980. 
Three would be the feds, and that could have been motivated by a few different things. It could be a standard, look at my right hand while you don't see what my left hand is doing type of distraction. It could be a false flag designed to target the conservative Christian types and take them down as a patsy. It could be so that the depopulation and eugenics agenda of the elites isn't so damn obvious, so that maybe in 10 years we don't realize just how much they've been boiling us frogs. Or it could be some combination of these and other factors. But let's take a closer look at these events. So the bombing occurred on July 6th at 4.03 a.m., which is an immediate red flag for me from a numerological perspective, which is so important if we are going to be investigating as a possible false flag. Numerological hints are dropped in all sorts of ways in these types of events. And July 6th is exactly six months after January 6th. If you want to frame the right for an act of domestic terrorism right in the middle of the January 6th hearings, which is also supposedly an act of domestic terrorism from the right and definitely not a false flag instigated by the feds, then what better time to do it than on the 6th so that you have the same number ringing in the back of the minds of the Pavlovian public? Also, the 403 timestamp. If you correct for daylight savings, that's 3.03 a.m. Not only is 3 a.m. the witching hour and has associations with the devil and folklore, but also we see the number 33 popping up in so many false flag operations. The grainy security footage released by the GBI shows essentially nothing but a silver sedan driving away. The perpetrator was smart enough to park on the side of the road where a tree blocked the view of the security camera, so we get nothing out of the footage. Something controversial is that the remaining stones were demolished on the same day as the bombing. Many people point to this as evidence of a cover-up. The Albert County Board of Commissioners technically owned the monument and the property that it's on after Robert Christian had landowner Wayne Mullenix deed the property directly over to Albert County during construction. The Board of Commissioners said they had the monument torn down at the request of the GBI or Georgia Bureau of Investigations for two reasons. One, the GBI needed to dig around the impact crater to gather crater material as evidence as is standard procedure in a bombing investigation, and the GBI was extremely concerned about having their guys near the monument at all given the immense size and the amount of damage sustained in the bombing. And then two, they were also concerned about looky-loos sneaking in for souvenirs, again given the weight and damage of the stones. My only point to this is that I don't see how you would get pristine crater material if you take down the rest of the monument on top of the crater. But in today's litigious culture, I could totally see some asshat coming in, stealing part of the monument, getting hurt or killed, and the county being sued as a result. And Elbert County, like most rural counties in America, isn't exactly flush with cash. Ultimately, the decision was made by the local county commissioners, not the GBI, so I don't think we can read too much into this one way or another. Elbert County got a lot of tourism revenue from the Guidestones, so I doubt very much that they would have been involved in a conspiracy to demolish them. As far as where we go from here, originally, Robert Christian and his group requested that if the monument were ever torn down, that it be rebuilt, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. There's no trust set up to pay for that sort of thing, and Elbert County, I'm sure, can't justify the costs that would be associated with something like that. The Board of Commissioners is looking to revert the land back to the previous owner per a clause in the deed. 
So that would be Wayne Mullinix, even though the surrounding property has since been sold off to a different owner. The commissioners did suggest that Wayne Mullinix gift the property either to a private owner or the Elberton Granite Association so that those entities could rebuild the monument again, but they said that decision would be up to Wayne Mullinix and not something that they would make on their own. The explanatory tablet is going to be put into the Elberton Granite Museum, but the monument itself was, according to one of the county commissioners, moved by a third-party company to a secure location. That's certainly mysterious, but they could just be keeping it a secret for security reasons. As it is, the explanatory tablet was removed because the Albert County Sheriff's Department didn't have the manpower to provide security for the site past July 8th. As far as the time capsule goes, there doesn't appear to be one. In the documentary, both Wyatt Martin and monument caretaker Mark Clamp, who is the son of Charlie Clamp, the monument sandblaster, said that they doubt a time capsule was ever buried. Hudson Cone, who was involved in the original construction as part of the Elberton Granite Association, recently reiterated that a time capsule was never buried, and nothing was dug up when they excavated six feet below the explanatory tablet. But let's get back to the question of why. As far as I am aware, before this year, no one in Georgia was actively advocating for their removal. Even the previous vandalism of Death to the New World Order was done with spray paint, not a hammer and chisel. It wasn't until Republican gubernatorial candidate Candace Taylor started campaigning on a platform of 10 executive orders that included the demolition of the Georgia Guidestones that anyone really started discussing full stop removal of the monument. If I had to throw jello at the wall, I would say that the bombing was a false flag done to gin up anti-right sentiment for the January 6th hearings and that Candace Taylor is playing the Alex Jones patsy in this scenario, not directly being blamed, but being blamed for radicalizing whoever did it. She also just recently had her house swatted, which is of course attempted murder by cop, but I don't know who did it or why. She did finish third in the primary behind establishment-backed incumbent Brian Kemp and Trump-backed former Senator David Perdue, so it's possible that the capital T they just want to kick the underdog while they're down so that they actually stay down. Before we go, I want to leave you with this request. If you're close by to Georgia, or even from far away but planning to be in the area, please go visit the people of Elbert County. They're good, lovely people with loads of Southern hospitality. The downtown is just cute as a button, and they're losing a major tourist attraction just after going through the COVID times that really hit local service industries hard. At the end of the day, the words and the idea came from Robert Christian, but the blood, sweat, and tears came from Elbert County. They found the astronomers to align the statue correctly. They found the interpreters to translate the messages into all those languages. They spent the hours creating the monument and they spent the effort to market the monument as a roadside oddity so that you and I and everyone else even knew the monument existed. I know times are tough financially, but if you can swing it, I know they would really appreciate not being forgotten in all of this chaos. And if you're a football fan, Miko Hardman of UGA and now the Kansas City Chiefs is from Elbert County. Fun fact, the Elbert County Stadium is made out of granite and is named the Granite Bowl. It truly is the granite capital of the world. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. Make sure you check out the show notes for all the links. You can also go to beacons.ai slash whatsamhill to get a free sticker and show your support for the show. Until next time, may you never stop asking, what in the Sam Hill?